Hello and welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we watch and discuss a year of film history every week, starting from 1895, the dawn of cinema. And this week is 1917. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Ellie. I am a film projectionist, and joining me as always is... I'm Glenn Cobell. I am a... For the... Filmmaker! <laughs> Uh, for the for the audio audience, we both had props, and I surprised Glenn by having a prop, and then he had to go grab one from behind him, which uh, he had already, because he is such a filmmaker that he's got a Super 8 camera just lingering in the background of any shot that he's in. Of course. Gotta stay on brand. Huh. Uh, so as we said, we are a film history podcast. Uh, we're watching movies from 1917 this year, which is uh, pre-copyright, so we get to play them for you on our YouTube version of this video, and you can watch along with us, and you can also watch them all for free on the internet, and uh, we're going to have a link in the description of both the YouTube video and the podcast to a playlist that shows uh, that gives you all the movies that we're watching, so you can watch them yourself or, uh, if you're watching the YouTube version, we're going to be putting on clips from the movies as we talk about them, so you get to watch a little bit along with us. Uh, and all the links for that will be in various descriptions. Now that we got all that out of the way, Glenn, how you doing? What's up? Oh, uh, I'm good. How are you? Sorry, I had I was, to silence my... I was my, hoping I to, for a little more than that. <laughs> I had to silence my phone real quick. Um, I'm good. I've, I'm uh, I'm putting the finishing touches on the short film that I've been working on. Mm-hmm. And making plans to submit it to film festivals, which is exciting. Yeah. That is um, exciting. You're going to be done with it probably by the time this episode comes out. I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, that's exciting. I haven't watched it yet. I have been... Uh, waiting until it was done before I, I, I saw it. Uh, Glenn has exercised a lot more self-control than I would have uh, as far as uh, keeping the the scary situation in the... Uh, I don't know even how much you want to do. There's there's a monster. You, there's yeah. a mon- you can see a monster in the trailer. It's but a monster movie. It's a monster movie, but... Yeah. I don't know what the monster looks like because mm. he has very judiciously hid that from people. Um, so yeah, I'm excited to see it once it's out. I watched the trailer and I dig it. Cool. Um, I am returning to being a projectionist somewhat. I got to uh, run some film yesterday, which uh, it was actually just to practice. It wasn't um, mm. it, uh, the maybe the Alamos and. New York are doing 35 millimeter um, because people come to that in in New York. But right now it's uh, it's all the theaters are playing the same kind of stuff for the most part. So I was just using the 35 millimeter projector and I got to thread up a film for the first time in nearly two years, which was nice. Uh, yeah. I was a little afraid that I was gonna forget how to do it, but then I was just like, hey. Like riding um, a bike. Like riding a bike, like threading up a 35mm projector. I yeah. ran, to answer your question, I ran the first reel of Four Lions, uh, which mm. we had lying around. Lying around. Um, ah. <laughs> now that we have 
caught up a little bit. Um, we like to catch up with what is happening a hundred years ago uh, and give ourselves a little. Uh, yeah, soon it'll be a hundred. But uh, <laughs> we like to give ourselves a little extra context for what we are seeing in these movies by learning about the world around us at the time. So, Glenn, would you give us the news of the year? The news of the year, 1917. News from the front. After the discovery of the secret Zimmerman telegram, a proposed alliance between Germany and Mexico, the United States declares war on Germany. T.E. Lawrence helps Arabian troops capture Aqaba from the Ottoman Empire. Hundreds of thousands are killed in the Battle of Passchendaele in Belgium. The temptress Madahari is arrested in Paris and executed for spying. King George V changes the name of his royal house from the Saxe-Coburg and Gotha to Windsor in order to appease fervent anti-German sentiment. Livery Stable Blues becomes the first jazz recording commercially released. The end of the Russian Empire. Tsar Nicholas II abdicates the throne. The first Pulitzer Prizes are awarded. White factory workers cause a deadly race riot in St. Louis lasting three days and leaving hundreds killed or injured. Women win the right to vote in New York State. Hmm. That's that's a nice thing at the end. I feel, I yeah. feel like... Um, it, it is, it's like, it's very late. <laughs> yeah. It is also well, not all women in the United States yeah, won the right to vote in 1917. Right. So. Uh, yeah, I... I feel like a lot of the news from around this time, it's like settles into a couple like genres of types of things. There's wow, I mean, that was late. <laughs> right. I mean, there's like there's like a uh, uh, suffrage stuff, which mm-hmm. we are getting in like drips and drabs uh, uh, through the years. There's a lot of war stuff now, of course. Yeah. Um, but then there's like. Every year, there's some enormous massacre of strikers, which is not fun, but, you know, I yeah, feel like we don't know about all of them. You there's, know? It, it is like every year, there's just some, like, horrendous atrocity that's like, oh, damn, this, like, yeah. doesn't even get brought up much, but it's, like, very significant. And, um, what's the other one? Uh, bad race stuff. Bad race yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that goes in. That, that fits in with atrocities, generally. Yeah. Ah, well, we we have the context. We've, we've got the knowledge of the uh, uh, sense of the world right now. So why don't we jump into our segment, One Week, One Reel, uh, and talk about the immigrant uh, sort of social issue movie slightly. <laughs> kind of, yeah. Uh, when slightly. Slightly. One week, one reel being our short film category. Um, yeah, the immigrant, pretty big short from this year, I guess. It's yeah, like... Adam McKay, right? What? Big short. Oh god. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, yeah, I think this is like one of the more popular and more well-known Charlie Chaplin shorts. Uh, yeah, and I think it's supposedly one of his favorite as well hmm um i believe i read that somewhere that he later in life or in his autobiography said that it was one of if not his favorite short that he directed yeah it was uh not the favorite short of the u.s immigration service no no Um. (laughs) for some reason they were not a fan of it this movie isn't you know i call it a social issue movie but it's just another situation where it's uh 
Charlie Chaplin having a a wrapper around his hijinks, you know? Yeah, very much so. And what what's happening in this movie is that uh, the first half, he is an immigrant on a boat arriving in Ellis Island, and there is a part in the movie where he uh, kicks an immigration officer because Charlie, you know, the tramp, anytime he is mildly displeased with someone, he kicks them in the butt. Um, and so that's all it was. It was a very just innocent slapstick moment, but it was used as part of the reasoning for excising him from America in the 50s, I guess, during like um, the time that they were, you know, yeah. Chasing after all this anti-Americanism, yeah. quote unquote, those, uh, and those so, rascally Brits, those rascally coming yeah. to it, come to America and making comedies. The rascally Brit Charlie Chaplin uh, was sent back to sent back to Britain partially because of this movie. Mm. So that's that's a bit of its legacy, I suppose. <laughs> it is funny that you s- described it as like the sort of larger sort of societal thing that it's commenting on being immigration is kind of just a wrapper for a bunch of hijinks, which apparently is kind of how this movie got made. Like he shot the whole second half first. Yeah. And then decided to sort of shoot the first half to kind of give that context, which I think is definitely an interesting way of making a movie of making a whole like self-contained short film and then deciding to, make it twice as long with right. a, with like and like complete... change the context of what you have just done with a new yeah. segment yeah um, um it does kind of give the movie a bit more weight though i think yeah yeah it's it's meaty for sure mm-hmm. um in in the broad strokes the first half of the movie is charlie chaplin on a boat sorry the tramp on a boat um and he is doing various boat hijinks with all of the poor people from Europe who are coming to America. They come to America. We're skipping over all the hijinks for now. Um, and they arrive at Ellis Island. He becomes an immigrant. And then due to circumstances on the boat of him winning money in a gambling game, but then realizing that the money that he won was stolen from a poor woman. So he gives it back. Uh, and then the second half of the movie, the second reel of the movie is, him ordering at a restaurant and not having enough money. And then he runs into the woman again and is trying to impress her uh, and make her think that he is not dirt poor. Uh, And then there's various hijinks with a very irate waiter (laughs) and uh, various holes in pockets. (laughs) (laughs) Love a good hole in the pocket gag. Yeah. (laughs) This contains a lot of things that at least i associate with like charlie chaplin storytelling i guess like it's got a lot of slapstick obviously but i think just the the sort of like slightly kind of melancholic tone Hmm. the the sort of like the main character being penniless but sort of charming and there being a kind of romantic aspect to it yeah um I will say, I feel like the end of this romantic plot, it ends in a very weird place that I did not love. Yeah. Um. <laughs> it ends with him kind of forcing uh, the the woman that he meets 
into marriage, and by that I mean like carrying her into a marriage office. Kicking and screaming, no less. Yeah. Uh, and that's I the last like shot of the movie. It's it's a it's a very from a modern perspective, it's a we- very weird place to end on. I feel like it was trying to be cute and like it was trying to be like, oh, she was being coy, but she did want to, you know, want to marry him or whatever. But uh, it does not look good. Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't. Uh, doesn't play great. It's not a great look, as the kids would say. Um. But other than that, it is it is quite charming and and nice. <laughs> yeah, and all the stuff on the boat's really good too. Um, I like the stuff from the second half of the movie, but I think that the gags in the first half are really great, especially like the opening, like the opening joke of you know you see his butt because like Charlie Chaplin is all about butts. Um, you see his butt as he is like in leaning pants. over. In pants, yes, in yeah. pants. But like he loves butt jokes. We've been over this. It's like, true. Kicking in the butt, looking at butts. Yeah. It's uh uh you see him over the edge of the boat, uh looking like he's seasick, um, and kind of like like almost twitching as if he is uh he is uh seasick over the side of the boat, you know. And what you, and then there's a reveal as he comes back up that what he was really doing was fishing. He pulls a fish out uh, from from the line, and that's it's a good gag. And then and then it follows it up with another one where he takes the fish and throws it onto like a pile of other poor people who are sleeping. And then the fish, like there's a close up of the fish biting a guy in the nose, and the, <laughs> <laughs> which I. I thought it was a very very funny thing to add, just like um, uh, a, I don't know, maybe animatronic in some way. It, yeah, it's like <laughs> it's like a, a fish puppet bites yeah. bites him in, in the nose. Yeah, I thought it was very silly, and I like that it. that thing of him being like facing away from camera, and you think he's doing one thing, and then he turns around, then you realize it's something else. Is yeah. I think a very common Chaplin gag. I've definitely seen that in other Chaplin oh. things. Huh. Um, and, but it's, it's great. It's very versatile, you know, it's yeah. like, you can always have it be something different and it's always pretty funny. <laughs> and, um, there's like a lot of other good gags on the boat. They do a lot with the swaying back and forth of the boat. Yeah. Uh, which with, um, yeah. Must've been a, um, an actual set on a rocker because yes. it's like there's props and things rolling back and forth. It's very... At first, I was like, oh, are they just, you know, doing the camera thing and having everyone go, whoa. Right. No, this isn't like a Star Trek thing. Like, everybody is flying in one direction well, or the other. when they're below deck, the yeah. set is definitely moving. But when they're above deck, you can tell that they are doing the Star Trek thing because you can see the horizon line of the sea. And that is right. also rocking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's a good mi- mixing of different techniques to get that effect. I- I love, too, that, like, the boat is kind of swaying in this unpredictable way, but because the tramp walks so weird, he can handle it better than anyone else. Yeah. <laughs> like, he, he he is just kind of in a normal scenario because he walks like he's drunk all the time. Uh, yeah, I love that. Um, and they get a lot of good mileage. I, I feel like, you know, in, in all of his shorts that we've seen so far, like, he comes up with a gimmick, and then he gets all of the mileage that he can out of that gimmick for slapstick bits. Um, mm-hmm. with, with the Telting set gimmick, there is like a scene where they're eating in the, uh, inside of the ship 
and when everything rocks back and forth, uh, the food is going from one side of the table to the other. So, like, he takes... Like, when it goes to his side, he takes some, and then when it goes to the other guy's side, the other guy takes some, and they're just, like, kind of stealing from the same dish back and forth. Get some good good mileage. There is a lot of stuff like that. There, Like, that is something that I think really stands out about Chaplin's comedy from... I don't know, just, like, the, the choreography is so, like, perfectly timed. Um with something like that where it's like I don't, I don't know how many times they had to do that to get the timing right but it it paid off and the second part uh is just like any kind of possible i can't pay for my meal and what's going to happen and violent waiter who uh is ejecting people who are 10 cents short uh kind of kind of stuff uh and also charlie chaplin just eating really weird <laughs> Another very common Chaplin gag is eating weird. That's like a big, <laughs> a big thing with him. I mean, he's got the famous, uh, you know, bread on the, the forks or whatever. But we'll have get you to seen, that. Have you seen much of his uh, movies besides like the the shorts so far? I've seen a few of his later features, um, but even then, there's a lot that I haven't seen. A lot of like the really famous ones, I've I've never seen in their entirety. I've only seen uh, The Great Dictator, I think. Mm. I've seen more of Keaton than uh, than Chaplin. Oh, interesting. Well, speaking of Buster Keaton... Yes. Uh, the Butcher Boy. Which is his film debut. Yes, uh, and it's within a uh, Fatty Arbuckle. Roscoe, quote, Fatty, unquote, yeah. Arbuckle. It is, it is weird that... It's very 1917 that one of the biggest stars in film is an overweight man named Fatty. That's like <laughs> what everyone calls him. That's his character name in all the movies. Yeah. It seems mean. <laughs> it does. But it's like, I guess it is sort of one of those just like, back then it was endearing, I guess. I, don't, I mean, I don't get the sense that he had a problem with it. But I don't know. Uh, I, I don't know that much about it. Roscoe Arbuckle, but yeah. also Fatty Arbuckle rolls off the tongue way better. You know, it, it's a it classic name. Um, yeah, mean as yeah. it may be. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this one, I was reading about uh, the immigrant, and and I was noticing in this one how I guess a lot of silent, like two real silent comedies at this time were kind of like one thing in the first half and then a whole other thing that's mm. somewhat related in the second half. And that's the case with The Butcher Boy, too. Yeah. Um, uh, I guess, you know, that makes sense in a way because comedy sort of works best in, like, short bursts. Mm-hmm. Um, and they get all the gags that they can out of one scenario, so they move it, on to the next one. It does kind of feel like they're, they're like, all right, we've wrung all the jokes out of this location. We gotta yeah. go to another place. <laughs> And then they go to another place and they wring every joke possible out of that place. And then movie over. Yeah. Um, yeah, this one is uh, this one is the first Fatty Arbuckle that we have watched, even though he's been around for a little while. Is it? I thought we watched a Arbuckle Mabel Normand short previously. Oh, I don't remember. Um, hmm. I believe we have. I don't think this is actually the first that we've seen. But okay. it has also been many months since we've recorded any of those episodes. So, yeah. <laughs> um, well, it's an early 
one for sure. Uh, and you know, it's it's tough because I feel like we're not giving the comedy stars their due in a certain way. Well, it's uh, like they made so much stuff that I feel yeah. like just inherently us covering like even if we were to do one of his films every year, we wouldn't even come close to covering the the breadth of his filmography. Yeah. With like Chaplin would... or Arbuckle or like Mabel Normand or Buster Keat, like any of these people. Yeah. They Harold did... Lloyd we haven't gotten to yet. Yeah. Uh, we haven't like kind of um, like lost track of uh Max Sennett. But yeah. yeah. But it's like there's so much stuff that it's like we couldn't possibly even come close to covering. Yeah. Most and slapstick's yeah. a little hard to talk about on a podcast too. It is. We're like, and then he like thing falls out of his pocket again. Ooh, yeah. It's um, it's like ah, oh, great gag when the guy slips on the banana peel. Yeah, just watch um, it. It's funny. It, yeah. it's 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 a good watch. There are some some things that maybe will sound funny by describing them. I mean, this the first half of the butcher boy takes place in a like a general store, um, which is a great place for hijinks. Um, there is a dog-powered pepper grinder with a dog on, like, a hamster wheel that, like, runs a, a grinder thing. Uh-huh. Um, there's a bunch of sausage links, which I feel like were more of a thing in 1917. I have yet to see a sausage link in real like, life. A, like, a rope of sausage links. I feel yeah. like it's such a old-timey comedy thing that I guess was just a, a common sight. It's like you go to the store and there's, right. there's a bunch of sausages there. But it's like, it's one of those things that's like, it's like an anvil. It's like, you never see one in real life now. <laughs> it's like, they only exist in like, silent comedy shorts and Looney Tunes. That's true. That's true. And the Looney Tunes are definitely like, harkening back to this stuff in a, in a, in a yeah, way. Yeah, big time. Um, which is another thing which is like, co- kind of cool to see is like, I don't know, like seeing how influential some of these things have been. Um because I, I think Looney Tunes was kind of had more of a presence uh, in my in youth. our lives, certainly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the other the other question is, and this is impossible to answer fully, is um, how much of these kind of routines and gags and ideas came from vaudeville and were adapted into early film and how mm. much were invented by early film? Uh, film comedy, I should say, or film variety. Yeah, um, it's it's un it's unclear, and I do because think... we haven't been on a stage, we don't really know. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's the thing about vaudeville is because it was live and not recorded. Like it's it's kind of impossible to tell in in a lot of instances. Um, but I get the sense that uh, a lot of very early silent film stuff does come from vaudeville, especially considering mm-hmm. that there's a lot of crossover in just people. Yeah, people who yeah, and also from like vaudeville. the the earliest Edison stuff was just filmed vaudeville acts, basically. Yeah. yeah, it is interesting to then kind of trace that to be like, oh, and then the the gags from now then became like Three Stooges gags in the 30s and 40s, and then those became Looney Tunes gags in like the 50s and 60s. That's why we're doing the show, became, baby. Yeah, it's like, um, <laughs> but it's yeah, I don't know, it's, it's cool to see that stuff. Yeah, definitely. But anyway, as I mean, influential people, Buster Keaton. Uh, yeah, already, uh, Buster Keaton and uh, Fatty Arbuckle are like a great comedic duo. Um, 
until Keaton kind of strikes out on his own, he's going to be working with Fatty Arbuckle on a lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and they kind of form the the same kind of, I guess, classic like fat man, skinny man comedy duo uh, that you get with these two guys. You get it with uh, Chaplin and Eric Campbell, who is the waiter mm. in, uh, in right. The Immigrant. You get Laurel and Hardy, Abbott and Costello, you know, classic. Yeah. Classic situation. Uh, RGD2, C3PO. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, another fun old timey thing in this is a slidey ladder that goes around the edge of the shop. Yeah. yeah. Um, love those. There's a lot of great, just like trick, like stunt, like light stunt uh, work in this. Like, there's there's um, a pie fight. There's a pie fight and a uh, flower fight. Uh, <laughs> and, um, uh, th- like, fa- uh, Fatty, the character in the movie, uh, it's, it's weird. It's uh, weird to refer to him as Fatty, even though yes, that is, like, that's his, his name in the movie. Technically the character's name. Um, he is constantly, like, um, uh, taking, like, the big knives and the, the spare pieces of meat that he has and just kind of flinging them in the air so they land perfectly where they need to. I couldn't really tell if it was, uh, if it was a jump cut or if he was just doing it. Uh, it seemed like he might have actually just been, like, really proficiently flinging knives, which was, which was fun to watch. Yeah. Um, um, the, uh, I found out there were actually two kind of two versions of this i don't know if the cut is actually any different but the the character names differ depending on which there was a 1917 release and then there was a later it got re-released later and they changed some of the character names i don't really know Hmm. why um but so part of the the plot is that uh fatty it oh it it's never gonna sound right (laughs) um fatty works at the general store in like the as the butcher he is the butcher boy of the title, um, and he is in love with the uh, the daughter of the general manager, whose name is Mister Grouch. the 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 woman's name is uh, either Amanda or Almondine, based on the version. Huh. I think Almondine is a much better character name because it kind of fits with the like food theme. Right. Um, although I guess that would make her her full name Almondine Grouch, if. Right. Well, by the end of the movie, it's Almondine Arbuckle. True. Uh, <laughs> After the sort of big pie fight, because Buster Keaton comes in and wants to buy molasses, and he eats it off his shoes and causes a pie fight. Also, um, from moment one, wearing his like pork pie hat. Yeah, uh, his iconic he, Buster he, Keaton. It hat. is immediately like, oh, there's Buster Keaton. He's wearing like yeah. the hat. <laughs> he's he's got it. Fatty's sort of romantic rival uh, for Almondine's affection is. Uh, either uh, Alum, Alum, or the much better named Sli- Slim Snavely, Slim Snavely, which is such a good villain name, especially as a foil to Fatty. Yeah, true. Uh, yeah, it's like he's the opposite. It's the classic sort of mirror image. So after the pie fight, Almondine gets sent away to a boarding school called Miss Teachum's School for Girls. Um, and so then the next. The sort of second half is about uh, Fatty trying to disguise himself in drag so he can go see Almondine, and then Slim Snavely and uh, Buster Keaton also trying to do the same thing. 
Buster Keaton playing kind of like the the lackey, the henchman. In this. Yeah, he is kind of a, a henchman. Um, at least in the second half, he is. Their dastardly plan is is partially foiled because uh, Luke the dog, who also ran the pepper grinder, uh, sees them and follows them inside the school. Because <laughs> always, it's another just great cartoon thing of like. Uh, like a plot being foiled by a dog. Um, <laughs> and I mean, speaking of cartoons, you know, eventually, uh, Slim is is made. Uh, uh, he he uh, he's revealed as a a guy who is in drag, who's uh, trying to sneak his way into a uh, an all girls school, and uh, there is another sort of cartoony style chase between actually like really good like screen um space uh, established mm. between these this hallway in the middle and six different rooms that they're just kind of running between it's a classic kind of scooby-doo style gag but it's a little less fantastical and a it's, little more yeah it's not grounded quite, in it's like they're yeah. actually running into different rooms it's not the thing yeah. of like there's going into a door and coming out a different door yeah <laughs> But they use the they they keep cutting back to the hallway, so you keep like a really good idea of where everything is, which I thought that was is well true. Done. And they they maintain screen direction really well, so it keeps it it is very easy to follow where all the characters are and what's going on, even as it's very chaotic. Um, it uh, there's a, there's a pillow fight. Um, Miss Teachum pulls out a gun and and sort of captures Slim and his cronies. Uh, and threatens them with her gun. <laughs> Another thing that's just, we're like, it's 1917 for you. <laughs> Everybody's just whipping out guns at each other. Um, I have a joke written down here that I don't know if it should go into the podcast or not. Um, which is, I think this movie is the reason J.K. Rowling is a turf. <laughs> Ooh. This is this is J.K. Rowling's nightmare. Yeah, <laughs> this movie. I, I think J.K. Rowling saw this movie, and that is the reason why uh, she is a turf. <sighs> it's <laughs> it's all it's all innocent. It's all innocent. Uh, do you have anything else on the Butcher Boy? Um, no, it's funny. It's is very silly, very cartoony. Yeah, um, I'm excited to see where. Uh, where Buster goes from here, because I know his later stuff is really good. I have not seen much of Buster Keaton's oh, no. stuff, so I'm greatly looking forward to it. Sherlock Jr. is tight. I mean, yeah, great. haven't seen it. Um, Alright, well, we uh, we talked about two silly movies. Uh, now, Let's it's get time for our feature presentation. <laughs> uh, it's depressing ones. Our feature presentation. And now we're pleased to bring you our feature presentation. We've got a handful of movies here. Yeah, we've got each a about an hour long. Um, not that many. None that were like. None of the ones from 1917 really sort of like end up in like film history books, I feel yeah. like. Um, it's kind of funny because like 1917 is supposed to be the. Like the. I feel like it's sometimes listed as the year that like classic era Hollywood begins. But it's not a mega bombastic beginning. Yeah. Um, but it, it is... I, I do also kind of like these years that are sort of like lesser known things. Because I think it we end up learning more from it. Yeah, for sure. 
I guess probably the most sort of like classical Hollywood movie from this mm. year is the first John Ford feature film. Yeah, and the straight shooting, the oldest surviving John Ford film that I'm aware of. It's his earliest surviving feature film, at least. Um, yes, this was a movie that he made when he was 23. Uh, it Terrible. was. And that makes me so angry. Uh, and this was originally budgeted to be a two-reel movie, but the story goes that he tricked the movie studio into giving him more money by telling them that what he'd shot already had been dropped into a river, and so he needed money to reshoot oh the whole thing. And uh, it's ballsy, right? That is, yeah. Um and so he he got twice as many reels as he was originally budgeted for because he he quote unquote shot the movie twice but just shot an hour long movie. Wow, <laughs> that's that's crazy. Um, yeah, he's he's credited in this as uh, Jack Ford, which I think he would be for a while until he decided to change his screen credit to John. Um, not sure why. Um. Yeah, I think he he got into he's been in the sort of movie biz since I believe 1914 is when he kind of came out to Hollywood with his older mm. brother and started uh who was an actor and started kind of helping him out and stuff, doubling for him, doing like stunts for him and eventually making his way into directing. Mm. Um this is this honestly feels like a real classic western in it a lot really of ways. does i um, really like this movie i thought yeah. it was very fun um and it feels so kind of classical in its i think it, it makes a lot of sense that this is like the earliest surviving john ford movie because it feels like a john ford movie john ford being sort of one of the the pillars of like the western film genre yeah um it has so many things which are just like yep like there's there's that thing that is like classical movie western uh this movie stars uh an actor named harry carey who was a big silent film star uh not the uh the sports commentator that i only know about because of will ferrell (laughs) but uh he plays uh cheyenne harry who is kind of a an outlaw type implicitly mixed race as well with that kind of tonto situation is he i mean other than the name is there anything implying no, that just the name yeah. I yes um he doesn't I feel like that's kind of a trope though is, is yeah. um the the western hero or or ancillary character who's who is more in touch with the, the you know the the ways of the world or something because mm-hmm. of you know because of being mixed race with uh, the indigenous people. Um, but, like, his... Harry Carey's performance in this feels so... Um, yeah, just, like, classical Western hero to the point where it's almost like, wait a minute. Like, John Wayne and... <laughs> John Wayne and Clint Eastwood were just kind of... Like, I don't are, think... Are the, all movies this movie? <laughs> a, a little bit. Like, this movie is every Western movie. Like, mm-hmm. in, in so many ways. Like, I was reminded of Stagecoach, of, like, the, you know, Clint Eastwood, like, spaghetti westerns, and of stuff like Shane. It's got a lot of Shane vibes in it, too. 
Mm-hmm. There's a, a a nasty rancher who's like trying to push the farmers off their land. Even that's got a little bit of a sort of like Seven Samurai, Magnificent Seven vibe it to it. It does really have a Seven Samurai feel to it. So it's it, uh, it's like a small scale Seven Samurai. This movie. Yeah, it's it's nuts how sort of like this is before any of those things, and it has elements of all of them. It is just yeah. like it is like the pure seed of westerns. In so many ways. <laughs> yeah, I was really delightfully surprised by this movie. Um, I have... I don't know if I've ever seen, like, a classic, uh, like, American Western. I've I've seen, I've seen like, a handful. I haven't seen the big ones, though. Um, no Shane? I've seen... I haven't seen Shane. I haven't seen Stagecoach. I haven't seen, like, anything John mm. Ford before. I Like, the only one that I can think of is uh, some... I can't remember the title. It was some like fifties uh, western with uh, Jimmy Stewart as the main character. Oh. Winchester uh, seventy three. Yes, yes, oh, okay. I've seen that one. Yeah. Uh, I don't know who did that, but uh, I've not seen that one. I've heard it's very good. It was it was good. I saw the Nitrate Picture Show. Nice. Um, but yeah, I, I'm much more familiar with spaghetti westerns. I've seen a lot of spaghetti westerns, uh, and what I had understood was the thing about like the kind of uh, uh, subversive thing about spaghetti westerns is that they had these kind of morally gray main characters. There was like a lot more um, ambiguity and mm-hmm. like anti-hero kind of stuff going on. And you know, the main character or who becomes the main character, Cheyenne Harry, he starts off as kind of a scoundrel, you know? Um, yeah. I think that like spaghetti Western thing, is more pronounced in the 1960s when, like, American West... Or, like, 1950s, 60s, when, like, American Westerns were much more sort of, like, moralistic and kind of, um... Uh, square, I guess. Um, (laughs) More a kind of white hat, black hat stuff. Whereas, I think this being so early and kind of pre-code, there is a bit less of that. Hmm. Um... I mean, yeah, Cheyenne Henry really feels like uh, he's got so many of the kind of uh, like cowboy gunslinger character um, mannerisms, even just like he's the way he leans on stuff. He like smokes a little cigar. He's got like a steely gaze. Um, He's got that like he gets in lots of fights around his neck. Yeah. Yeah. it's like the only thing missing is like the sound of the spurs, but it's silent movie. So, um, mm. yeah. And, and there, there are some moments where, um, Harry Carey, I think does some fantastic acting where, uh, toward the end of the movie, he's having to make, uh, some like kind of tough decisions about his sort of, you know, masculine, like stick it up, stick it out on my own in the, in the wild mm-hmm. West kind of attitude or do La- I laugh like, on the range? Yeah, or do, <laughs> or do I become a farmer? But yeah. boring. But like he's really conflicted because he's grown to like the farmers a lot, and uh, and so he's there's a there's a good scene of him just kind of wrestling with his feelings, uh, and and it really comes through in the in the silent acting. Yeah, he doesn't he doesn't overplay it. You know, he doesn't do sort of like the over the top kind of like big wild silent movie kind of pantomime stuff like he he yeah. gives a pretty i mean it's it is a, a silent movie performance 
but it is a a uh, it's a good one. Yeah. Um. I I gotta say that the 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 way we're introduced to his character to Cheyenne Henry <laughs> is one of the best character introductions I have ever seen. It's so insane. <laughs> this movie is a pretty like self serious movie with yes. like with like death. That's why it makes like, even death less and, sense and starvation and things like that. And then the first time we see Cheyenne Henry, the sort of like you know the like cool aloof sort of like dangerous you know hero at the center of it. We see someone put a wanted poster up on a tree, and then Shia Henry pops out of, like, a hole in the tree like a squirrel. At, like, a 45-degree angle, like, from the top left of the screen. Yeah, it's like he comes out, like, you know that there's that picture of Pennywise from It, like, sticking his head out of a pipe? <laughs> it looks like that. Um, it's and he goes, weirdly he, like, zany. So he pops out of the tree like a squirrel, and, like, he sees his wanted poster, and he's like, hey, that's me! Um... And it's it's an it's a weirdly silly moment in this movie, but it I love it so much. <laughs> and then from there, I mean, we so we were introduced to the the sort of uh, Thunder Flint is the the rancher who's trying to push the farmers off off uh, off the land. The farmer being Sweetwater Sims. In, a lot of great names in this one. Yeah. Um, oh yeah. What what's there? There's uh, there's the uh, was it Sam the Ranch Boy. Sam the Ranch Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, but anyway, so the, uh, Cheyenne Henry shows up to a, a saloon with, this, with you know, the saloon doors. It took me a while to kind of pick up on exactly what was going on in the plot with this. There's a lot of sort of like early plot machinations during the first third of it that I didn't mm-hmm. follow entirely. Um, but the movie is entertaining enough without even really following that that I was fine with it. Yeah, I kind of um, lost lost the plot for a second there too, because like a fight breaks out and it's not entirely clear what it's about. It's I think um, what it was. This is a great this is great podcasting. What I what I think the movie was um, is uh, the the sort of um, well, there's there's different factions, right? There's the farmers, there's the ranchers, there is this group of outlaws who live off or live they they're. Uh, uh, run by Black Eye Pete down in Devil's Valley. So Cheyenne Henry arrives in the bar and he gets offered a deal to kind of join the ranchers on their uh, on some mission that they're doing. And he is this kind of uh, amoral guy at the beginning of the movie. He's so like he's he like a mercenary. On. Yeah, he's like a yeah. He's he's wanted. He's like a he's a criminal. He's an outlaw. Um, He's an outlaw. He's one of those. One of them outlaw went to the saloon types. to find an outlaw, so they found one. Um, and he, at some point, realizes that these uh, ranchers are much more like bad dudes than he really wants to associate with. They're up to no good. They're they're shooting people in the back, uh, and uh, he. Uh, uh, and, and Cheyenne Henry at one point says, I've done dirty things in my life, but I wouldn't plug someone in the back. Uh, and that was that, that, uh, that one being shot in the back is the, is Sweetwater, uh, Sweetwater Sims's son. And this is part of this kind of turf dispute, uh, where the ranchers are trying to take over Sweetwater Sims's land. And this is where it really starts feeling like seven samurai. Mm-hmm. Um, because you know, they, essentially bring Cheyenne onto uh, 
uh, onto their quest uh, to 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 it's very very medieval questing sort of situation uh, uh, onto their quest to protect them from this raid of the the ranchers and uh, he decides to go along with them because he's a decent guy in the end yeah um, and then there's a big fight uh, yeah uh, they kind of Harry recruits yeah, uh, some of his outlaw pals, uh, Black Eye Pete from Devil's mm-hmm. Valley. Uh, Black Eyed Peas. Yeah, yeah exa- exactly what I thought of. Um, and it sort of, it all leads to this big kind of like siege almost. This like enormous like horses, you know, coming in on the, on the, the homestead. Um, and it's it uh, it does some uh, some of the classic kind of intercutting as we've seen a lot where there's the the ranchers guys are are attacking the homestead and then we're we're cutting away to uh Harry and Black Eyed Pete sort of riding back towards the the farm to help to help the fight and sort of like the building tension of sort of like when are they going to get there when's yeah. the cavalry going to arrive <laughs> you know um, and it's a really well, I think, especially at the time, a really well-directed, uh, action scene, like action yeah. set piece. Yeah. Um, it's got tons of horses galloping, um, you know, uh, Ford, I think, already really knows how to shoot this stuff. Like, having not seen his earlier shorts, I don't really know how much he's sort of built up to this, but it's like... He already has such a good eye for just like how to shoot this sort of just like western action stuff. Um when to kind of stay wide and show like the the landscape and show like the sort of big like groups of horses moving things like that and how, and when to like punch into you know horses running past camera or people, you know, shooting guns and getting shot and falling out of trees and stuff. Um yeah. It really does feel like he's taking a lot of what I think uh, D.W. Griffith has been doing and kind of taking it to the next step um, and kind of kicking it up a notch. Yeah. Um, it's a good movie. I yeah. liked it. Um, there is kind of a, a another just like weird thing at the end. <laughs> I don't even know if this is worth talking about. But um, there's the whole thing of so like they 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 beat the ranchers right and we get a we get a uh, a, um, a title card that says peace and tranquility return and then uh, uh, Sweetwater Sim tells Harry my son is dead now you be my son <laughs> um, which is a weird thing to say to a person and then uh, <laughs> Joan uh, Sweetwater's daughter is like making horny eyes at Harry. <laughs> and Harry says he belongs on the range and he leaves and that's when he has this sort of like uh you know he's grappling with what he wants his future to be. Um and uh there's some back and forth and at that point like he is almost doing a walking off into the sunset. Which is how deal. I thought it was going to end. And I was like perfect. And then he changes his mind. And he changes his mind. I was like nah, never mind. I kind of want to go back. But there's there's a really I thought very funny scene where Joan is waiting for him to come back. And yes. <laughs> this other guy, Sam, who's been working with the ranchers, but then helped them at the end, 
Yeah, and um, he's been sweet on her the whole time. Yeah, it's like the Sam. whole time they've been kind of set up as like the romantic couple of this movie. And so then Sam comes back and like he meets Harriet when Harry's leaving and Harry's like, go, like, be be with the girl, you know, like you two, you two kids go, you know, go be together. And so he comes back <laughs> and he like shows up and Joan's there like seeing someone come through the door and being like, ooh, who is it? Like not looking. And then Sam comes in and she, her face drops so quickly. <laughs> She is so disappointed. She is hilariously like, oh, let down by this. You. She's like, "Ugh, <laughs> you." Um, but then Harry does come back, and they smooch, and it ends on that classic Western, yeah, situation. If we want to uh, travel a little to the east into Europe, um, we can actually. This could be a segue into either of these next two movies. Ah. Uh, well, why don't we take a little journey from America to Europe, and uh, we're going to talk about The Little American uh, by Cecil B. DeMille uh, and starring Mary Pickford. Uh, we kind of picked this one because it, um, it's been a minute since we have talked about Mary Pickford, even though she's still the biggest movie star in the world at this point. Yeah. We, um, we have watched... And also... Like... Not that many Mary Pickford movies, considering... No. Some shorts, definitely. This might be our first feature with her, actually. Maybe. Um, And, yeah, like, she's the the highest paid, biggest movie star at the time, Uh, but her movies are... uh, We've been ignoring a little bit, and unfortunately, I mean, this one's, like, okay. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, this one, um, I don't really get the sense this is, like, even a particularly, like... um, like a great example of a Mary Pickford movie. I think this was kind of an outlier, kind of an unusual choice for her. She's kind of not against type in this, but I think this this type of this is a war movie, and that's not really what yeah. she was known for. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, in this movie, she plays the little American. Uh, it's a propaganda movie, uh, yeah. specifically. Uh, uh, it's not just a war movie, it's a, but it's it a is pretty a... blatantly prop propaganda movie yeah um it's a it's a movie that is supporting the u.s's recent entry into world war one uh and uh trying to make the germans these kind of hideous enemies and uh the americans as these innocent uh uh these innocents who who are stumbling into a conflict with monsters yeah it's it's not it, it's not a movie with a lot of time for nuance, for sure. Mm. Um, it's pretty uh, sensationalistic. And by pretty, I mean extremely. <laughs> um, I kind of get the sense that that is, having not really seen uh, even his later movies, that's kind of Cecil B. DeMille's thing. He's he's about grandiosity and about, like, excess. Bombastosity. Yeah, bombastosity, yeah. exactly. That's a word. Uh yeah, I like the cheat a lot though. If we're talking about Cecil B. DeMille movies, and uh, this was more bombastic than the cheat. Uh, the war scenes were actually pretty good at points, or at least big scale. Mm-hmm. Um, but this movie was like a um, somewhat simplistic in in its drama, I suppose. Yeah, it, it follows. Uh, it's it follows a lot of predictable beats yeah. for sure. Um, I mean, it's another love triangle, which like. About 90% of silent films are. Yeah, that sounds about right. 
the uh so yeah mary pickford plays uh the the titular little american i'm not sure i guess she was somewhat short for the time i don't know if it was meant to mean i'm I'm not sure if it meant that she was short or that she was just kind of a young girl yeah there there's a lot of i'm noticing this in other movies too that like little is something that is applied to women very commonly in in Mm -hmm. old things and it i don't like it um (laughs) Uh, but she plays Angela, who is who is American, and you can tell because she is introduced in front of a fluttering American flag, <laughs> so we're yes. sure where she is from. And one of the first scenes is uh, her birthday, and it's her birthday is on the Fourth of July. Yeah, because of how American she is. Yes. Um. Uh. There is a funny scene. Uh. So she is, um, I guess, kind of romantically entangled with. A, a half German man who lives in the United States named Karl von Austreim. Mm-hmm. It was a very German name. Um, and uh, there is a, a little boy named Bobby who is, I think, his, his <laughs> younger brother. Um, I think it might be her younger brother, maybe. And, I'm not sure. And he's saying, I'll show you the German goose step, Bobby. Which is weird parenting. Um, I guess this is an... <laughs> Is, German goose step didn't have as much of a, no, as much of like, a bad connotation. From in 1917, set in 1914. So I think even within the context of the movie, it's supposed to be kind of be like, a, ooh, boy. Maybe not so much, Bobby. <laughs> um, He's teaching me the goose step, and I'm a German captain, yeah. he says. Um, bad look, Bobby. Um, but then uh, uh, war were declared, and Carl gets yes. called back to Germany. Uh, with a, a hidden message on a on a card, um, and Angela learns of the war and worries that Carl is going to be killed, naturally. Um, and we, we kind of time jump a couple months ahead, um, where Angela receives a letter from her aunt in France, um, and we cut to the front and we we see a bunch of soldiers fighting. We can tell they're French because of their mustaches. <laughs> Um, and we can tell they're German because of their pointy hats. Their pointy helmets. Yep, exactly. Um, <laughs> Angela departs uh, to go to France to, I guess, help her aunt with the with the war. I'm yeah, a she, fuzzy she hears on that, that point. She, she yeah, she um, she hears that things are going on, and she wants to help because she's a good American, and uh, so and she's also going to see her aunt in france she goes on a ship called the veritania very subtle uh, uh naming there um yeah. um and they think they're all safe because it's americans and they haven't officially entered the war um but uh they're the ship is suspected of carrying munitions uh by the germans and is is sunk uh which is somewhat the situation that happened with the lusitania it's it's a very um, direct i think reference to the lusitania one because of the yes. name and because of the entire sort of situation as presented yeah. in the film i also found out that apparently cecil b demille knew people that were killed on the lusitania and so had a yeah. sort of a personal reason to kind of present that that tragedy in in the film yeah um uh, there is a very cool shot uh, of the ship tilt, like inside of the ship, 
tilting and filling up with water. Like the whole We're set. We're just wowed by tilting sets. Today. Tilting sets is just always, <laughs> always cool. Um, especially when they fill up with water. There's some really cool shots of uh, after the ship sinks and there's everyone's in the water and there's sort of searchlights from the the German submarine. Yeah, sort of standing like, over the people in the water. That was that was really good. It made the scene way more tense than it otherwise would have been because you're just getting like flashes, kind of. Yeah, of, of all of it's, the like the people drowning. It's a kind of unusually, um, I guess, sort of artful shot for for this time period. Um, yeah, and and so naturally they're like uh they're like you fired on american women and children and the the submarine crew is like ah you'll be okay they're very nonchalant about it <laughs> um there's a lot of stuff in this movie of sort of like but they could never do such things to an american oh. <laughs> you can't do this to me i'm american look at me holding out my little flag that i pulled from my shirt i'm yeah. an american don't hurt me yeah it's like how dare you do such awful things to me an american <laughs> um yeah it's like oh boy mary pickford or angela survives naturally and uh gets picked up in in one of the lifeboats and reaches her house in france only to be told that her aunt has died but that makes her the lady of vengi i have no oh. idea how to say this in french i'm gonna uh, say vengi yeah. because why not Vangie. Bangy. Um uh yeah and um the Germans start advancing uh on uh the areas in France where she has started to set up home and uh they start shelling different places and there is a a whole lot of chaos and and sets falling apart uh and and shots of like possibly real military equipment like being fired there's definitely some actual shots of like artillery going off and and stuff getting blown up um because the you can tell the, the film stock is a lot rougher and also it's hmm. a lot harder to fake that uh back then yeah um because we can probably like fast forward over a lot of the details here but uh yeah she she's told to leave but she stays behind to kind of help the wounded um, and ends up getting recruited by the by the French to to kind of cover up their their telephone lines uh, in the house uh, so that the, they can use them to communicate. Um, but then the the Germans show up at the house looking for old wine and young girls. Yeah, which is uh, never a good is, sign. This is the um, this is a part of the movie that's you know trying to be really like uh you know treat the germans as as these like monsters basically to kind of rouse support for more anti-german sentiment the kind that gets people to change the names of their mansions <laughs> exactly. um, change the name of uh, their entire m- monarchy uh you know, <laughs> surname yeah uh yeah so the germans are uh uh, violent and lecherous and brutish and taking art and burning it and yeah they're they're uh, they're cutting up paintings and smashing furniture to like light the fireplace um they're like you know putting their boots on everything um 
you know, classic car- cartoon German soldier stuff. Yeah. At one point, she gets chased through uh, a dark part of the house by one of the German soldiers, and uh, she tries to escape and is hiding in a dark room, and the soldier finds her, but then she switches the light on, and surprise, it's Carl. The, it's Carl. The man that she was in love with in the United, in the back in the States. And he's like, oh, no, I didn't know it was you. And she's like, don't matter. <laughs> That's not really the part that I'm terribly worried about right now. Like, um, So she gives him a nice kind of thrashing. Um, at least verbally. Um, and then, so then he's like, all right, you know, I'll make sure that you don't get murdered. Um and he's trying to do the right thing while also trying to be a German scoundrel. He's really uh, uh, splitting the difference, you know? Right. Um, uh, and then she has to, like, clean the... Well, she has to put put one of the, the, like, the officer's boots by the fire to dry them, but they catch on fire. And that was funny. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's, that was an example of, like, the German officer, like, she's pleading for forgiveness and to let, like, the, her servants go because she's American, and the German guy's like, hmm, I don't know how I feel about this. Why don't you, uh, why don't you, like, clean my boots, uh, and then we'll talk, you know? <laughs> um, but so, uh, Angela is using the, the hidden telephones that, um, that she hid, uh, to help the French, um, and Carl finds out about it, but, uh, you know, pretends to, to capture, in quotes, Angela, instead of, um, uh, actually capturing her. Um, they sort of conspire, uh, when, when the Germans find out about the, 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 the secret telephone lines. Um, and she says, and they say something about, oh, I thought you were, I thought you were, you're American, you're supposed to be neutral. And she says, I stopped being neutral, and I became a human being. Yeah. Um, which is a very over-dramatic line, but, um, you know, it fits with the rest of the movie. But they're both about to get shot by the Germans, and then the French artillery hits, and... Uh, Just at the right time. Yeah, and so uh, they, they escape. Um, and there is a pretty cool shot in here where Angela and Carl are kind of walking through like a war-torn street with smoke and fire and explosions going on. Yeah. And they, they take refuge in a, a bombed-out church, and a, a bomb lands near them and, like, blows up everything. But the but, Jesus. But the crucifix. And it's like, all right, we're all <laughs> settled there. Um, And then they got found, and, like, Carl goes to a POW camp, but then they, they're, like, they get to eat sandwiches through the fence um, because apparently they still uh, like each other after all of this and they and they decide that uh angela has been such a hero that they're going to let carl go free uh let her love come with her back to america uh and we can think about his american half instead of his german half right and it's happily ever after kind of situation we, we iris in on on them kissing in a very classical romantic ending it's it's interesting because like the movie is so um the movie's trying to be so like basic about who it hates and who it likes. And then it does like kind of complicate like the propaganda nature of the movie by having this half German, half American character who's 
evil at some points and good at some points, but the American loves her and I guess loves her his American half. That's it it adds like a bit of moral complexity to the movie, but I guess for a propaganda movie it seems like a weird choice. It, it is one of the hints, I think, of like a a more complex story that's sort of under the surface of this movie. I think this movie mm-hmm. is so overly dramatic and so sort of like simplistic on so many levels, but there are there are little hints that come through of something a bit more nuanced in it. Um, that being one of them. Another is like throughout much of the movie, there is this sort of thing where she's like, Oh, I'm like, I'm an American. Like, don't you, don't you care? And there was a moment where <laughs> she's confronting the Germans with this, with this. And they're like, no, like it is war. Like we don't, we don't care that you're American. Like we're going to do what yeah. we're going to do. And she's like, Oh, I guess, I guess being an American doesn't, like, solve everything. Like, there's a bit of her kind of, like, coming to that realization that, like, the world is a bit more complicated than that. Yeah, she's more, she's pretty naive in the Um, But it doesn't really lead to that much. It still ends on a very kind of, like, uh, sappy note. Um, So, yeah, not, not the best movie, but I think it was interesting to see, both from the, like, uh, the work of its sort of its director and its star as sort of an example of both of their things and sort of like they were mm-hmm. two big names from the time who were working together. They made another movie uh, in 1917, um, which was, I think, more of a kind of traditional like romantic drama um, without any sort of war element to it. Um, but also just to see like a contemporary depiction of the current great war war world war happening yeah um even one that is as kind of like simplistic as this i wish that we had like a counterpoint movie to it maybe in a couple years we'll get one um hmm. interesting uh, yeah you know it'd be very interesting to see like a like in uh an austrian uh world war ii movie from the time but i, I kind of get the sense that also like america had the ability to like we're gonna make a movie about the war it's like austria is like no we're fighting the war <laughs> we're very yeah. small it's why we that why they kept losing actors from uh from from les vampires yeah, exactly um um i mean apparently uh apparently dw griffith also made a uh anti-german propaganda film uh uh around this time and from what i read um, he kind of felt regretful at like the spite with which he made that movie. Uh, he feels bad about white people, you know. Oh, of course. Yeah. Um, uh, and he ended up making a movie even later, like in the 1920s, I believe, that was kind of bringing uh, respect and dignity to the German people. I'm sure uh, right around the late 20s, early 30s, that was something he was real into. <laughs> I'm sure he was like right around like 32, 33. He was like, you know what? Maybe we gave those Germans a bad rap. I really agree with yeah. a lot of what they're saying. It turns out. Oh boy. Um, D.W. Griffith was a bad person. Um, yes. This movie weirdly kind of can't decide if it were is referring to the villains as German or Prussian. It seemingly yeah. Uses... It calls them the Huns too, which I don't know. That, what that the is de- a I was trying that to is look a, up the deal with a, that. A uh, contemporary for the time, sort of slightly derogatory term for the Germans. 
I yeah, I don't know where what the root of that is. It seems vaguely I, racist I, though. I I think it is. I if not racist, certainly sort of yeah, like not not nice. Um I I feel like I I've heard it in a lot of World War 1 movies or stories like it's it's you know, it's yeah. what the Brits are always uh calling calling the Germans. The Jerry's is before Jerry's. They hadn't they hadn't yeah. done Jerry's yet. Um, it's the precursor to Jerry's. <laughs> uh, the Kramers. Um, Jerry. Well, uh, why don't we not segue at all and uh, talk about a a movie that is not American at all? Yeah. Tarya <laughs> vegan. Tarya vegan. <laughs> Just double checking on the pronunciation. Yeah. Taya Vegan, uh, which is a Swedish film about a Norwegian fellow. Um, is based, named after. Based on a Norwegian poem. Yes. By Heinrich uh, so, Ibsen of Pyrgent fame. So, uh, another wartime situation. Uh, it was about 100 years and change before the movie was made. Uh, there was a British blockade around Norway, and it told the story of Taya Vigen, who is a man who tried to kind of sneak his way through the blockade so that he could get money from, or get uh, supplies from Sweden uh, to bring to his uh, starving family. Uh, and his whole town was starving. Uh, and so it was kind of this heroic thing, uh, but uh, there are some complications. Um, Indeed. This is directed by uh, Victor Sjöström. Uh, let me double check sure, that. Sjöström. I'm just, sure. just going to anglicize it because... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Victor Sjöström. Sjöström. Dude, cat, can you not... <laughs> this, is by, this is directed by Victor Sjöström. Uh, which is a uh, Swedish man who is most famous to most people, probably, for playing the old man in Wild Strawberries. Which I did not realize until after I saw the movie, and I was like, oh, damn. I've seen that movie. Yeah. It's like the yes, only... it's a good movie. It's like the only um, Bergman movie that I have seen. Um, but he's much younger here, and he is directing and starring in this film. Um... It was, as far as I can tell, the, I, I mean, I tried to cite this as best I could. It was the most expensive Swedish film at the time, up to that point. Uh-huh. Um, it is, it is often uh, cited as, like, a, a groundbreaking early Swedish film, along with another Sjöström film, uh, In- Ingeborg Holm, uh, which mm-hmm. also directed and starred in, um... It takes place uh, during the Napoleonic Wars, or as I call it, Nutcracker Times. Um, I don't know what that means, but okay. It means everyone in this movie looks like, looks like a nutcracker. <laughs> Off topic, we can cut this out. I was watching um, Amistad. I'd never seen Amistad, so I, I finally watched it. Uh-huh. Um, and that takes place in... Later than this, I think that's like the 18... I don't know. It's like the 18... 50s or 60s so i guess uh, around the same time and uh yeah there's there's all these like very dramatic scenes of 
people being like put in chains and like thrown in jail and but all like the soldiers and like people you know the sort of like authority figures look like nutcrackers they've got these like fancy like colorful uniforms on and it's like it's just weird to see such like dramatic scenes of like oppression happening when it's like but they look like nutcrackers (laughs) i feel like all sorts of old-timey military regalia looks like that it's true but like there's a specific like period of time where it is just it's it's weird um anyway these are the things that um, these are the thoughts that happen in my brain. <laughs> so yeah, uh, when uh, Teria uh, goes out and uh, tries to get those supplies, he gets captured by the British. Um, well, we start the movie sort of en media res a bit. Um, yes, where we, that's we true. open on uh, Teria in as a as an old salty sea hermit. And then we're kind of introduced to, like, this is the old man, Tarje Vegan. He's old and salty. He lived a life. And then it's like we flash back to when he was young. Yeah, cool, like, non-linear storytelling. Um, Definitely. Yeah, and it, it kind of gives the story a bit of its sort of, like, mythic vibe a bit, I think. Yeah, including the fact that, it like, uh, like the D.W. Griffith movie, The Unchanging Sea, uh, this is mm. also based on a poem and play and shows parts of the poem or the entire poem uh in the title cards right yeah uh so it does have that kind of epic mythic quality mm-hmm. uh for sure um and yeah like you're saying i think that uh, uh starting with this hermit and then learning his story and then at, we kind of move back toward reaching the point at the beginning of the movie is a cool way of introducing everything um but so yeah so then we we were introduced to his his life on on the norwegian island that he lives on his his wife his daughter the sort of situation where there there's a british blockade and they have little to no food and his decision to kind of go out on a boat and sneak past the german ships uh to find some food from the neighboring islands um which he does in sort of he like hides uh amongst like the tree branches and covers up his boat. Um, yeah, there's a really good shot while he's hiding from the British, uh, where uh, he's successfully like covered himself and his boat in branches, and you see it's this like classic shot that you see in so many things where the camera sees the kind of search party passing by, and then it just hangs on the scene after they pass a little too long. Yeah. And you're like, oh, oh, oh. And then it turns out he pops up from the yeah. from the branches. Uh, I thought that was a really good reveal. Maybe the first time that's ever been done. I don't know. Maybe. 90% um, of silent films are lost. How can we yeah. know? <laughs> um, but so then he, he makes it to the island. He gets his food. But then on the way back, he gets caught by a British patrol. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, they sink his boat. And they're very mean about it. They they mock him openly. There's sort of one British officer in particular who's particularly kind of nasty to him. And they yeah. they throw him in prison for many years. Some say as many as five is what the title card says. <laughs> uh, yeah, and with that captain, by the way, I thought that it was another case of really good acting where you know the 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 captain's back is to the camera. 
and you see Terrier um, pleading to the captain, and there's a point where it kind of shifts from him like realizing, thinking that he might have a chance, to realizing that they're just mocking him and they mm. they're going to throw him into prison anyway. And you see his face like turn from misery to hatred, you know, and and it's you're it's um you're just reflecting off of the back of you you know you can imagine what is going on on the face of the british captain even though his face is facing away from you mm-hmm. based on like what is happening with terrier acting uh, is reacting there you go um and yeah well done it reminded me of my favorite scene from birdman which is where a similar thing happens oh, interesting. uh you see emma stone like berating michael keaton for like a little bit too long and then you can't because it's a single shot movie. The 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 mm-hmm. camera's only on her face, and then you see like her kind of realize that she's overstepped, and then you, you could you're kind of imagining what's happening in the space where you can't see. Mm-hmm. And so it's a similar thing happening in this movie, which I liked. Yeah. Um. So then he's uh, he's in prison for as many as five years until the war is over and he is eventually freed. Um. But he returns home, and uh, no one recognizes him because he's he's aged. He has a big beard, his gray hair. So he he returns home to his uh, his his house to find another family living there, hmm. Rip Van Winkle style. Yeah, and uh, they um, they tell him that his his family has died, presumably from starvation while he was gone. And he, you know, he goes and finds their graves, um, and decides to just go off and live on his own as a as a salty sea hermit. And then yeah. we're sort of he shakes his hands in anger at the sea, and the townsfolk think he think he. I mean, we've all been there. Th- yeah, you know, just shaking uh, our fist at the sea. The townsfolk all think that he went crazy, and they all stay away from him, and um, he becomes a hermit. And so then we're, we're caught up to where the movie begins, and that's sort of where I thought the movie was going to end, but it keeps going. That's really mm-hmm. only the first... not It's more than the first half, but there's a whole kind of another act coming. Um, and so while he is out on his... doing his sea hermit things, um, he sees a British, like... Uh, sporting yacht that's caught in some rough seas um off the coast of his island and he goes out to help them um only to realize that the man on the yacht with his family is none other than the officer who mocked and imprisoned him so many years ago Yes, and he he goes from saving them to trying to tank the boat because he's trying to exact his revenge. Yeah, um, um, and uh, yeah, so he's he's trying to like run the ship aground and sink their boat in like the same way that they sank his boat. Um, but then he you know he sees the 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 daughter of the the officer who is like a toddler. Um. And and his mother, her mother, uh, says, Anna, my baby. And he stares at the daughter because his his baby's name was Anna. Mm. It's, it's, a, it's a real Martha moment. Right. Of, Very true. Uh, so he has a I change think, of heart. I think Zack Snyder's a big fan of uh, Tarja Vegan. 
Um, he has a change of heart, like because he realizes that yeah you know, he he realizes that he can't kill a kid basically. Yeah. Um, and so then he he brings them back to shore. He saves them, but then once they're back on shore, he confronts the confronts the guy. Um, and they sort of have a uh, you know, the guy is remorseful. Yeah, he says he uh, he says the time for revenge is now. But as uh, when he's about to take them, he has a uh, it says he has a moment of clarity, and then he says uh, the, those years in prison poisoned my mind, but now we're even. Uh, so he kind of just like snaps out of his vengeance rage right, uh, right as he's about to make the final blow. Um, and so they they uh, the the British officer and and his his wife they they're we kind of cut ahead and they're they're leaving the island and they thank him for saving their lives and he's like thank your daughter not me like without her i'd have killed you and then as per custom of a swedish film we end on a big old title card that says slut (laughs) which is always jarring yes to our english eyes english speaking eyes our English-speaking eyes. Exactly. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, I like this one. I thought it was uh, it's quite good. I I, I like the the vibe of it. Mm-hmm. I thought that it had, um, like you were saying, that kind of like epic, poetic kind of quality with these big, yeah. kind of moral choices. Um, um, it's very like well shot, well staged. Um, there's a lot of yes. shooting stuff on the actual ocean. I'm assuming. Mm-hmm. Which, as we all know from Jaws, is very hard to do. I I, I do kind of think it's interesting that uh, uh, Sherstrom is uh, sort of... He's very well known for uh, directing early Swedish films, but then also starring in Ingmar Bergman movie. And I think it's kind of interesting to try to compare this movie to Bergman movies a little bit. And to kind of see a little mm-hmm. bit of the parallels there. I might be reading into it too much, but I, I do kind of get, I feel, I feel some parallels there just in the, the, the sense of kind of, um, the use of like landscape and kind of, um, the, like the sort of like, uh, elemental elements to it of like the sea and, you know, like that, that's stuff that I, I, I kind of associate with, with Bergman, not like entirely, but. Well, you know what's also funny is that uh, Schistrom, uh he, uh, there is another kind of parallel with Wild Strawberries, because he originally was not interested in making this movie, and then he went on like a sentimental trip back to his hometown, mm. uh, and and uh, he like went, you know, went on a journey by bicycle riding around in in Norway, uh, and and Sweden, and. Uh, the 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 trip and eating strawberries uh, <laughs> maybe yeah <laughs> and so uh it does seem like um you know it's it's got this kind of weird like similarity yeah. with uh wild strawberries also i'm convinced that because criterion are such like bergman simps that uh like the reason why this movie is on the criterion channel is because of wild strawberries maybe um it is not on Criterion Channel in very good quality, I will say. 
get on that Criterion channel. There are better digital copies of this movie out there, and you step up your game. Yeah. Um. Well, that brings us to our last movie, right? Which is called A Girl's Folly by Maurice Tournier. 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 Uh, he's a French director who uh, moved to uh, the U.S. to make movies starting in 1914, uh, and he's made some pretty well-respected movies. Uh, and this one uh, is very meta. It's, it's, uh, I wouldn't say it's... Vi- it's not like Matrix okay. Resurrections meta, but it's like... No, it's not... Yes. It's a movie about making movies. Uh yeah, so this is uh, it's a movie about making movies, which I feel like we needed to check this out because honestly, like we're watching these movies somewhat separated from the context of their production, where you know we it, it's it's interesting to see the degree to which movie making has become an industry, like a like a big warehouses where seven movies are being shot at the same time mm. hundreds of people organizing things like it's unclear we don't have a lot of behind the scenes footage really um it's unclear like how uh what the movie making and movie consuming landscape are because we're watching these things on little screens on our computers yeah. you know? this is kind of the closest we get to like behind the scenes footage uh, yeah, it's definitely like a kind of like Hollywood insider, like yeah, yeah. only in Hollywood, baby. There, there's a, there's of, a bit of, of this movie is almost sort of like, see, this is how movies get made. Um, yeah, yeah, which is a lot of the fun of it. Um, mm-hmm. This movie, uh, except I, I say Hollywood, but it's Jersey. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that also is, I think, an interesting thing about it is that it's it's early enough that. Uh, Hollywood is not the sort of de facto like movie town. Yeah. Um, but it's also like it's it's a Hollywood has corrupted you story. Yeah. But it's about New Jersey. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh this movie's starring Doris Canyon, who played the titular Ocean Waif uh last Oh, I didn't realize that was her last year slash episode. Oh. Um, and in this, she plays a lonely country girl who discovers the magic of the pictures. <laughs> uh, yeah, she uh, she's dreaming of a kind of more uh, adventurous and, and interesting life. Uh, she reads a lot of books and imagines a troubadour uh, who appears in a ghostly image that... Like, I feel like we've done, like, double exposure mm-hmm. trickery stuff before, but, like, I, I, I feel like the... The way that she interacts back and forth with the the specter uh, is more naturalistic uh, than a lot of the gimmicky uses before. Yeah. Um, but um, she kind of uh, it, it, it introduces this uh, this girl, and then it jumps to the the movie biz baby, and it starts like kind of doing the inner. <laughs> The, the inside of the studio stuff, all these, like, vignettes of, of different things happening in the movie studio uh, uh, in more proximate to New York City, Jersey. And she lives in rural New Jersey. Yeah, there's a, uh, there's a funny title card that says, Frequently, movie actors do not know uh, the plot of the picture in which they are working. And I was like, still true. Just ask 
any actor from a Marvel movie. They're like, I don't even know which movie this is. I'm just showing up and oh, shooting really? my lines. <laughs> um, so, the, yeah, there's a lot of, like, kind of Hollywood... God, I keep saying Hollywood. There, there's a lot of, um, you know... Movie town. Movie town kind of stuff, like, like uh, narcissistic stars yeah. and uh, uh, signed photographs like autographs being sent to people uh but the autographs are being done by someone who is not the star (laughs) Uh, (laughs) uh, for as much of this movie is kind of like hey look how like movies are made isn't it neat it is also kind of like this is a vapid uh yeah it's a little cynical um it it's it it is showing both elements to it the sort of like the glitz and the glamour, but then also sort of this, this sort of like a little bit of the kind of the, um, the, yeah, the more kind of cynical, the, the fakeness of yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. The artifice and the, the sort of, uh, the egos involved. Um, and so there's a, there's a part where it shows, uh, like there's a movie being made, uh, on set and there's a director who's being, who is the, the director playing himself mm-hmm. basically yeah. in the movie. Uh, and he's like having people run over scenes and uh, do you know d- do different takes with different emotions and everything like that. And as he's like kind of telling the actors what to do, uh, all of the intertitles uh, the the intertitles are are having like hands moving chess pieces around on a board, which I thought was really neat. Mm. Um, it it maybe a little insulting to actors calling them pawns you know but like it it is interesting how it kind of draws this parallel between like setting up a complex like chess situation and and being a director of a movie and the intertitles throughout this movie do something which i I feel like is kind of rare which is they have like an original illustration for every intertitle Mm -hmm. um that is kind of getting the idea across of what is happening in a sort of metaphoric metaphorical way. Uh like with the chessboard. Um and later, uh when uh the the girl is being uh like tempted by the the the, the sins the sins of Hollywood or the sleaziness of Hollywood, there's like a of kind New of Jersey, innocent <laughs> yeah, New Jersey, right. <laughs> I keep saying, I keep saying uh, New Jersey. Uh, there's like a, a a kind of cherubic young girl who is the way that she's drawn in her representation in the intertitles, being tempted by like a demon, basically. <laughs> uh, there's all sorts of interesting like visualizations of the ideas that they're trying to get across. Like uh, the intertitles were kind of one of the most interesting things about the movie to me. Yeah, I I only really kind of started picking up on that partway through. Um... But that is like a really, I, I like seeing stuff like that. That is like using intertitles in a uh, an original way, or as like incorporating other visual elements into them to help tell the story besides just the words on them. Yeah. So there's there's this movie that's being made sort of separately from the story of uh, Mary, who's the lead character. Um, and we kind of meet this this the the star of the movie named uh, Kenneth Driscoll, uh, who is a motion picture idol. Yeah, who's the guy who uh, doesn't sign his own autographs and is just kind of this like uh, 
yeah, he's like a movie star, but he's also kind of, he has all these sort of like, uh, young girls that follow him around and he's flirting with them constantly and his wife is like, ugh, god damn it. she's his wife. Is she his wife? She, no, it's his, it's his wife, I think. Okay. Yeah. And so the 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 two plot lines kind of converge when uh, the movie is being made in out in the country where Mary lives, and uh, she sort of see, sees a scene that's being filmed, like an action scene, and thinks it's real, and so she runs out to help and runs into the scene. Um, there's a, a hilarious intertitle where they say, "This poor simp ran into the scene." I really thought of you when I saw that. Why you think I'm a simp? No, but just you're the one of the people I know that uses that terminology. Ah, uh, yeah, gamer words. Yeah, and so Driscoll's there, and he's like, "Hey, hey, young lady, you should be in the pictures." And she's like, "You know what? I'd like to escape my humdrum farmer life, so I will." And then she goes to the big city of uh, New what. Jersey, I thought that Jersey City. I thought that they were going to New York. Oh yeah. Well, hmm. they they yes. they get on a train. Yes, New York. You're right. They get on a train to to New York, and Mary's kind of getting shown around like the the movie studio, and it's like oh exciting, like different people doing their jobs, um, all that all that fun stuff. Um, and she like immediately writes a letter back to her mother. Uh, being like, I'm so excited. Everyone loves me already. Like, this is this. It's going great. Nowhere to go but up. And then she does a, uh, does like a, like a, a screen test. Shoots a scene, and then it gets screened. And she like sits down in the screening room, and they're like gonna project it. And she's all excited. And we don't actually see what the scene is. We just yeah. see like them starting it and then finishing it. And, like everyone just like gets up and silently walks out. Yeah, and, and you see the the faces on the directors kind of turn sour as they yeah. realize that she's not good. But I I I did think that was a very good sort of like visual storytelling. We never we never actually see what the like scene that they shot is or her acting. Yeah, we just see everyone's reactions to it afterwards, and they don't say anything. You know, there's no intertitles about it. It's just sort of like it's like Birdman. <laughs> yes, this movie is basically Birdman. Um. Uh. But yeah, it, it was another example of that of just sort of like just seeing someone's reaction and like we understand everything we need to know. Yeah. And so then she's sort of like, well, I I guess I failed, and she's going home. But then uh, Driscoll comes to her and tries to get her to stay because he's like, ah, oh, no, stay with me. I'm, I'll make you rich, kid. Um, yeah. He calls her little girl in this scene, which is like again, like don't don't ever do this. <laughs> like it's not is not good. Um, I think that there's so much of that in silent movies and it, it, it always just creeps me out. So she kind of like becomes a socialite for a minute. Yeah. Well, at, at uh, first she's like, no, I'd never want to see you again. She's like, I'm done yeah. with this bullshit. But then she, she's going home. She's like, I don't really want to go home either. So I guess I'll stay. <laughs> um, yeah, and then there's an intertitle that said, and there emerged from the drab little cocoon a butterfly whose untainted wings were about to be singed by the flame of life. Damn. Very very poetic. Yeah. <laughs> really laying it on thick in those intertitles. So then, yeah, we kind of see uh, a scene of her and Driscoll kind of in high society. Um, 
But then uh, Mary's mother comes to visit her, uh, bring with her a bunch of gifts from the country, including yeah. a <laughs> Nazi horseshoe. It's not a Nazi horseshoe. It's not a Nazi horseshoe, but there is... They're like... there's Pre-World War II swastikas. Yeah, there's all these intertitles for the different gifts, and one of them is a horseshoe, and they, they you know, it says, a horseshoe, and in the intertitle it says the words, and then there's a picture, like a drawing of a horseshoe, and then as, like, decoration along the bottom of it are a bunch of, you know, pre-Nazi swastikas, so, like, they're inverted or whatever. Designs, They're just right? Designs. But it is—it's very jarring to just be like, "Oh yeah," and, yes. and one of these is just a horseshoe, and then just there being like twenty-five swastikas on the screen, and it's like, "Whoa, Jesus!" <laughs> uh, her mother is like, "Oh, Mary, I miss you. I'm all alone in the country," and she's like, "Ah, oh, fine. I guess I'll go home. Like, I don't really like living with this asshole either." Um, and so she goes back to live with her mother, and uh, Driscoll kind of goes back to his wife. Um, and we, we see the movie ends with Mary sort of getting off the train in rural New Jersey. Um, and there's this sort of like farm, farm man who's been trying to, trying to flirt with her the whole, like the whole beginning of the movie. And he meets her at the train station and they, they, they go off together. And as they're going off together, we see two of the, like the railroad workers, and one of them is like, "Oh, ain't that romantic? Romantic spelled with a C- T I C K." Yeah. Um, and the other guy goes, "Romantic nothing. That's moving pictures." And that's the end. <laughs> moving pictures, like apo- I N apostrophe, like it's spelled out with the accent. I like when they. I I, I enjoy when they. Uh put accents in the intertitles except when they do it in a racist way which is mu- uh, usually when they're doing it they're doing it in a racist yes. way um but when it's done in just more casual like new jersey accent i'm i'm okay with it um and that's that's that movie that's the picture yeah that's, that's it's that uh picture. yeah it's a fun one um yeah it's it's nothing like um compared to like Tarya Vegan or or Straight Shooting, both of which I think are like very solid, good movies. This one isn't yeah. doing anything particularly special, but it is. It's it's definitely an interesting sort of window into the time period, kind of in the, yeah, kind of in the sure. same way that The Little American is. Also, I also want to point out that while they're in their high society party, they pass a shoe around the table, and each person like puts a little bit of their cocktail into the shoe. And I don't know what that the was. Guy drinks, the guy drinks like the suicide yeah. cocktail out of the shoe. I guess that, that was, was just a, a common party game. That was wild. Back in 1917, that's what you did at parties. <laughs> you put everyone's drink in a shoe and drank the shoe drink. Um. Well, I guess that about wraps it up. I guess uh, so. It was, Glenn... We had kind of a, um, a quiet year, this one. We didn't have to cover an entire yeah. movie serial. <laughs> Oh boy, yeah. I mean, we could have done Judex, but no, uh, no, no, no. <laughs> I've heard it's good, but I'm sure no, it is. No. I'm sure it's great. Uh, someday, yeah. it just got released on Blu-ray in the European region, Ooh. so we could import it. But I don't know. Um, that'll be it. Glenn, do you have a favorite movie of this year? Uh, yeah, it was straight shooting. Yeah, straight shooting. It wasn't apostrophe. Um, it should have been. 
but yes. I think there is actually a different movie from later called Straight Shootin'. So maybe we'll watch that one too. Um, yeah, it was, it was uh, much better than I expected any movies from this year to be. Terry I Vegan uh, was one that I initially had a lot of love for. Um, but I think I might have to edge it out to straight shooting, shooting. I want to say shooting. Yeah. Uh, I have it's to edge more, it out to straight shooting it just feels uh, right. as well. That movie's just like really solidly put together and it feels mm. like all of the kind of Western stuff in a nice little package. And it's a, it's a really good watch. So yeah. I liked it. All right. Well, that'll about do it for this week and this year. Yeah. One week, one year, you know, um, if sure, you are sure interested, smash that like button, rate, review, subscribe. Those things. Um, yeah. yeah, follow us on anything that you're not following us on because you want to know everything we do. You know, uh, we post uh, behind the scenes stuff uh, and uh, little jokes and nonsense on our Instagram, uh, and we'll update you on Twitter when there's new podcast stuff. Though. Uh, most of the stuff's on Instagram. Follow us on YouTube. Subscribe on YouTube. As Glenn said, smash the like button. And then uh, listen on your podcast, too, if you want to listen to it in the car and just hear us talk about movies instead of see us talk about movies. And, yeah, I guess that'll be about it. Moving on to 1918 next year. So, yeah. Glenn. Till then. See you next year. Bye.